Welcome to all those tuning into March's Southwest Climate Podcast. It's Tuesday, March 4th, and we're on the heels of an epic Southwest storm. Epic. I'm using the word epic. That's descending into uh, hyperbole right now because it's been a really, really dry winter so far. So we really needed this. Um, I'm here with Mike Crimmins, as always. And so I've got a few things on my agenda, Mike. Um, I think we should talk about the, the recent rain in the context of what's turning out to be a very warm and dry winter. Um, and I also want to delve a little bit into the, the warm conditions. Uh, December, January, and February uh, for Tucson has experienced record warmth. So, so if we can discuss this in the, in the context of climate variability and, and climate change, I think that would be, uh, that would be useful. Uh, and then finally, uh, this this winter has been marked by polar opposites in in, in weather extremes here on the west and there on the east. Uh, and so, uh, if we can we can highlight what's been going on in both both areas as well, and maybe maybe talk a little bit about the polar vortex, which we mentioned in our last episode. Um, that would be that would be useful as well. So uh, let's let's kick it off with with the recent uh, storm. What what, what what can you fill us in on? I'm just kind of reeling. You call it epic. I I, I think that that's a very very sad state of affairs. That if it rains here at all in the southwest, it becomes an epic storm. But I think I think you're kind of right. I think it it broke up a a, a, a pretty extensive dry spell. We had a couple of records that fell um, here in uh, s- uh, southern southeastern Arizona. Here, this storm was a um, Forecast pretty well. We saw a kind of a week uh, out, a week uh, coming in the long-range forecast models, and um, it uh, gained some energy and plowed through Southern California, which hadn't seen any precipitation at all this entire winter time, and dropped a good over 10 inches right on some of the coastal ranges of California. It moved inland, and then here on Saturday we had a couple of waves of precipitation that moved through um, Arizona, including a couple of severe thunderstorms that even hit. The uh, Phoenix metro area dropped an inch or two of rain and put out some pretty impressive wind and then um, moved off pretty quickly. It was a pretty quick moving storm and moved off to the northeast. Um, overall, storm, to- storm totals across Arizona were anywhere from about about half an inch. Um, most of the state got, you know, with a quarter to half an inch. And some of the, the areas along the Mogollon Rim got as much as three inches of precipitation. And again, I, I think that the important thing to note with this storm, too, is it's it's March, and um, it was actually a pretty warm storm. The snow levels were pretty high, and it didn't do a whole lot for snowpack across uh, much of the southwest. Yeah, I want to I qualify my epic adjective <laughs> because that's in the context of, at least in, in Tucson, aside from one little slight trace of, uh, of rain, we hadn't experienced precipitation since about December 21. So that was on the order of two-plus two months. right. Right. Extremely well of dry. Yeah, dry I think we conditions. had. A, I think we had a, some numbers um, came out of the Tucson Weather Service office here, National Weather Service office. Was a 40, 44 uh, day dry stretch between uh, measurements at the airport, which is you know we're in the heart of our um, so called wet season, our winter wet season, and to do that, those kind of numbers, that's normal for us in say April or May, but. Mm-hmm. You did it right in the middle of winter. That's not a good time to do that kind of. Well, we had a little bit action. of we had a little bit of April in. in, in we had February. a lot of April, in, and that's exactly right. We had a lot of April in, in January. We're having a little bit of inverted seasons. I'm a little concerned now what April is going to look like. Yeah, and um, so I'm looking at the recent uh, snowpack conditions um, from the National Resources Conservation Service, uh, and um, wow, they're all below 30% with the exception of uh, one small basin in uh, right around Flagstaff. Uh, but this is in Arizona and most of New Mexico. 
actually part of northern uh, New Mexico. The snowpacks are in the upper Rio Grande region uh, in New Mexico are you know around 60, 65 percent. So it is a a, a pretty dry winter uh, so far. And of course, that recent storm that you just spoke of, Mike, it did not do much for New Mexico, right? No, it didn't. And I think that, you know, the important thing here is that Zach and I are looking at some updated numbers. So this, these are not numbers that were collected um, prior to the storm event this past weekend. This is after the storm went through and you see very little change in snowpack conditions across Arizona and New Mexico. They're, it just looks pretty bleak. The, uh, the recent storm did very little for, for New Mexico. Correct. Yeah, yeah. There's very little change. If you look at some of the Snowtel sites, so Snowtel are the snow telemetry sites, the sites that monitor the accumulation of snowpack. Um, there's little bumps at some of the upper elevation spots, but it, it made no real big contribution to the overall snowpack with these sites. And these sites have actually been losing snowpack over the last month with the warm conditions that we've had. So very little net gain, actually a big net loss over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so New Mexico, the drought picture in New Mexico is probably going to get progressively worse as we head into spring. But last podcast, about a month ago, we, we talked pretty extensively about what was driving the dry conditions here in, in the West. And it was the, this persistence of a, a ridge, a ridge of high pressure that was basically causing uh, or, or helping to sort of push away storms from uh, the Southwest and divert them more in, in, into the North northern part of the the west coast has that more or less stayed true or has there been more breakdowns and that's persistence and the ridge hasn't been as persistent yeah so we we talked in um i think the beginning of last month and we were we used this term the ridiculously resilient ridge which is still we have to figure out where that came from i think it was a weather service office in california but it's a it's a real nice way of describing that this ridge of high pressure where the jet stream bulges north across the east pacific the storms follow that bulge north of, of uh, the jet stream. And so the, those storms that are typically, um, you know, entering the California coast or the North Pacific Northwest and sometimes coming through Southern California where they would, they would um, clobber us like we had this last weekend, have all been steered up through Canada and sometimes even up into Alaska where they've had some really crazy winter weather this last winter. That pattern, which persisted through much of December, much of January, it broke down a little bit at the end of January and the beginning of February, which gave California a little bit of precip, but then it quickly built back in. And then that's actually what led to our, down here in Arizona um, and across much of the Southwest, is that that spike in temperatures. We had some record temperatures with that ridge building back in. And it hasn't been until this just very last day of February that it broke down again and allowed us to have the storm sort of move through the Southwest. Right. So that's the, the position of that. Uh, of the jet stream, of, uh, of the high winds. Um, it's, it's moving north in the west coast, but it's also dipping down into the Midwest, and, and it's being pushed down from the north by the, by the polar, polar vortex. Um, yeah, pushed. It's sort of a chicken or egg thing. I think that the jet stream pattern is, is allowing, or it's, it's more of a cooperation thing, right? I mean, so we're, we're thinking about this jet stream pattern of bulging north in the um, East Pacific. Um, these are wave trains so what goes up in a wave has got to come down and these waves again are not gravity waves in the sense of like waves at a beach they're they're what we call rossby waves so they're um sort of dispositions of um energy and mass from the equator to the north pole that's kind of a sort of overly technical way but just think about if something goes north you've got to have some sort of compensating southward dip and so that's what you get is so the stronger this ridge 
um, intensifies across the East Pacific and the Western U.S., you're going to have some downstream, um, what we call a trough. And so that trough then is now air that's um, winds and weather systems that are now um, coming towards the southeast, and that's a very, very cold trajectory. So it's taking cold polar air that's accumulating at the poles and starting to pull it down now uh, and displace it southward over the upper Midwest. And so that that is, again, the sort of lobe of the polar, the dreaded polar vortex that we've been talking about. So you have a layman's way of defining the polar vortex, because I know people have been talking about this, and there's some confusion on what it is. Yeah, I, you know, I think that it's, 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 a, um, it's part of a global circulation pattern, and it's the, um, you know, accumulation of very, very cold polar air. You know, think about the poles during the wintertime don't get any direct sunlight, so it's, there's a lot of radi loss of radiation to space, so they're going to cool off. Um, so you're just building up cold air there. Now this, this lobe of the polar vortex, which is typically this um, low pressure circulation that hangs around towards the pole, has been sort of pulled off kilter a little bit because of this jet stream pattern. And so it's then now persisted with the bulk of that cold air being very quickly and efficiently transported to the south. Um, over, say, the Hudson Bay in the upper Midwest. Mm -hmm. And again, think about the jet stream pattern being stuck. If we're under the warm part of the ridge, that means downstream there's going to be a cold part of this trough that um, continually brings that same type of weather over and over and over again. So as Groundhog Day-ish it was here in the West, warm, it was as Groundhog Day-ish cold in the East. So as, more, as persistent as it was here, warm is as persistent as it was there cold. Yeah, it's really sort of accentuated or highlighted the, the, the difference in the weathers between the two between the two coasts here where we've been, um, you know, hot and dry, as I said before, or warm and dry rather at this point in the in the year, whereas, you know, the, the, the East Coast is really experiencing record cold and record record wet wet conditions. And it is both a, a consequence of of the position of this this jet stream, but I want to sort of come back to to the west here. Um, and you know, mid February, I believe uh, February fifteenth ish here in Tucson, there were you know temperatures in in the nineties, and I had a few sort of street conversations uh, from people who sort of had this frightened look in their eye. Uh, you know, this is you know this February is wearing the the, the costume of you know our our future. Our future climate in the region, and I, th I think it's worth talking about the warm conditions in the context of both variability, weather happens, uh, and also in the context of well, we know we're getting warmer. So, what can we say about February's temperatures uh, uh, given you know natural variability and, and climate change? So, what ended up happening in February was it's this combination of when we we talk about sort of the climate change versus weather. Climate is not weather, and weather is not climate. So we have to think about these. Um, we we can't separate them, but they can't be um, sort of used at the same time. So again, this these temperatures that we saw within February were related again back to the jet stream pattern, right? So what was happening in the eastern U.S. is that again, you think about that jet stream pattern sort of bulging south. It's going to drag cold air from the south. If the jet stream pattern is bulging north, it's going to drag warm air from the south, and that's exactly what we had happen in February. Was that really good, efficient um, transport of very warm air from the south um, to bring those high temperatures. And we were talking before the podcast, too. They were record, um, but the, actually the record high temperature for Tucson is 92 degrees, and it was set in 1957. On so, that day? 
Uh, a couple of days before. A couple days before. Yeah, a couple yeah. days before. So this is not unprecedented, right? And again, is that to say that climate change doesn't have anything to do with this? No, not at all. I mean, climate change is now a background condition with a little extra energy in the atmosphere. Is that to say that part of that warming and part a little bit of that extra energy in the atmosphere was was um, realized in some of those temperatures? Absolutely. You know, it's part of everything right now. But was it the main driver of having record temperatures in February? We can't say. Right. And you made the point earlier that you actually, without weather, you actually can't get the temperatures in February to be at 90 degrees Fahrenheit anyway. Yeah, if you think about, you know, the way that um, you have a couple of pathways to create really, really warm temperatures, and, and often when they work together is when you get the really extremes. February is still winter time, right? And the days are very short. So one of the ways um, that you can make it very warm here in Tucson is you just have very long days. That's why we get into, into June and we have these um, un, you know, oppressive heat waves is because there's so much solar insulation and it's so high. February doesn't have that. So to get temperatures up in the 90s, you actually have to drag air in from somewhere else and also cause it to sink and warm in the atmosphere, which is actually part of that ridge. It's part of being underneath the high pressure system. Well, um, for some people, that slow march of summer uh, seemingly began in, in, in February. And quite frankly, it really hasn't changed. I mean, we've been no, it, warm. Yeah, it kind of messes with you, right? I mean, because I think we were all walking around like I was pretty sure it was February, but it certainly feels like April. The only thing that gave it away was that the days were still short, thankfully. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do we have any insight in sort of what's 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 in the next couple months? I mean, before, yeah. before summer takes <laughs> Right, takes so, and I think there's a couple things to point out here. So it's March, right? And our um, our wet season, and again, I use that term so very loosely here for the Southwest, uh, you know, it's December, January, February. March, it starts to slide off the table. It's not to say that, you know, you can have wet marches and you can have these sort of late storms and that really things, the things start to shut down in April. You know, we really start to lose our opportunity for, to have these... Um, cold winter storms really move through the region. So we're running out of time here. And you look at the forecasts, which have done an okay job with trying to track this ridge, build that ridge back in uh, across the West over the next two weeks. So um, maybe I can say this out loud and say, I'm worried that we're maybe shutting down shop for the season here. And, you know, we've got to look toward to the monsoon season. Maybe saying that out loud will cause cause a storm to sort of brew. Well, we are running out of time for Arizona and New Mexico, but um, you know, if you're thinking about water and a lot of the water in, let's say, the Colorado River, uh, you know, comes from the from the Colorado portion of that, and you know, they've done fairly well in the in the northern part of um, of this state, where a lot of their snowpacks are above average. So that's really going to help the picture, uh, the stream flows in in the Colorado River buffer against some of the dry conditions that. I've experienced down in the in the lower basin and even in parts of, uh, of of Utah, and they of course have a longer winter winter to begin with. They do, and you know it's we have to be vigilant though. I mean, I think that you know March is actually if you go back through the record books, is um, we have these um, snow eater events, and when you have really um, early strong warm conditions in March that will build up through the Intermountain West, they, it can actually munch on the snow and literally evap- sublimate it is actually what ends up happening to it. So it can eat the snowpack. So what, what you really need to have is a continuation of the, of the winter storms, cool conditions to sort of maintain that snowpack and then um, you know let it do what it's going to do through April and May and June. 
um, to manage it as streamflow. So we're, st we're still not even quite out of the woods, even with having sort of normalish snowpack in the, the Rockies. Right, and I'm actually really worried about the Rio Grande because the Rio Grande and the headwaters of the Rio Grande, um, you know, it's below average precipitation uh, snowpack, actually. And then most of, uh, in, in New Mexico, the snowpacks that contribute to uh, the river as well are, are way below average. And that, and, and, and the water stored in that river is already at yeah. very low levels. You know, so this is going to be another year in which the Rio Grande for, for farmers, for example, are going to get very small water allocation. I know that the California drought has really eclipsed the drought in New Mexico. It, it really has. I mean, going back to some of the National Climatic Data Center data, um, January was the driest January on record for New Mexico. I mean, it was the second driest on record for California. So the record was in New Mexico. It wasn't in California. So that's, uh, you know, we're, we're a little distracted right now. I think that the big story really is in New Mexico. And of course, 30% of our food doesn't come from New Mexico. Fair enough. Fair, like fair enough, right. Yeah, but I mean, we're, we're looking at, you know, um, completely unprecedented yeah. conditions there over there. there are people that are going to be suffering quite, um, quite a lot in, absolutely. in New Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. So we'll be monitoring that as, as we go forward. But really, that story hasn't changed. I mean, this no. is just a continuation of, uh, of the story that's been uh, persistent in New Mexico for the last couple of years. But I think it's, it's important to emphasize that in, in terms of impacts, you may not need a very uh, anomalous winter. Once you have very low conditions, let's say water stored, it doesn't take really low water, uh, water conditions or snowpack conditions to push you over the edge. Yeah. But we don't necessarily need these... Um, uh, extremely dry winters to create um, large large impacts. So as you progressively get closer to that threshold, it mm -hmm. takes progressively uh, less drastic conditions. Yeah, yeah, it's a creeping crud. Drought is definitely a creeping crud, and it's you know we're going three four years, three four winters now of um, just unprecedented dryness across the Southwest. You know, you can look back to the only thing saving. Well, not, it's not even saving. It's the only thing that's causing any of the drought metrics to be um, somewhat rosy across the southwest was the um, summer precipitation of last year. And and even you can narrow it down to a week of rainfall that happened in September. It's the only thing that drags New Mexico's stats up a little bit. If you, if you were to cancel that out of the equation, we would be uh, in completely unprecedented drought metric territory for New Mexico. You know, it's a couple of events that have changed any of the numbers in New Mexico. So that's something that we got to keep an eye on as well. Right, so I, I think maybe we can turn a little bit in the next five minutes or so to, to looking forward. And uh, I mean, we talked a little bit of last episode about potential causes for um, you know the dry conditions here in, in, in the West, and people were pointing, or uh, yeah, I guess people were pointing to maybe maybe there's some link to the Arctic, and then there's other people that are saying no of course it's 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 the tropics that that drive our, our our weather here by and large so what's what's going on in the tropics is it's pretty important mike you have some some thoughts on uh on, on perhaps what enso is doing in the future i do well I mean, you sort of build on that point you just made as I, I read a really um impressive um report on this winter time pattern that we've seen by the united kingdom met office their big national weather service over there and and they they were making the argument that the jet stream pattern that we've seen across the western U.S. that's in the eastern U.S., so the ridge trough, which has actually influenced a very, very epic, epically wet and stormy um, North Atlantic winter season, um, they say that it looked back to the tropics. So 
they're suggesting that this is a very, very La Nina-like pattern, even if there's not a La Nina pattern underneath it. So to kind of extend that thinking, what we're paying attention to now in the Pacific is um, some extremely warm water just below the surface is starting to move its way, make its way across the East Pacific, um, across the entire Pacific towards the East Pacific. And so that's that's the initial it's the hint of El Nino. It's the hint of El Nino. And, it, and it's even more than a hint because this is the exact mechanism you need to have happen is you need to have this warm pool just below the surface make its way um, towards the South American coast. And the idea then is, is that what it'll do is it'll work its way to the surface by the summertime and put us into El Nino conditions. And then um, that would be possibly something that would persist through the summer and into the fall and then into next winter, which would be the, the inverse pattern of what we've had. You know, it would, it would, it would favor more storm activity across Southern California and the Southwest. So, and these temperature anomalies, they're, they're, they're actually quite large. They're impressive. I mean, they're six, degrees, seven degrees Celsius. Celsius, which may not seem like a lot, a lot, but it's, um, that's kind of off the charts as far as tracking underwater temperatures coming across. But this is sort of right on that. We're teetering on the edge of whether or not we're able to get any sort of predictability out of the current conditions. Yeah, you know, the models are all, they're coming in line. But again, it's, it's, it's a time of year that's very, very difficult to see if these things sort of keep going or they fizzle out. And we've got plenty of instances where they just, they don't quite make it. And, you know, this, what ends up having happen is it's got to make its path, it's got to make its way across the Pacific. It's got to make it to the surface. And then in, in short order, the atmosphere has to pay attention and start cooperating with that. And if it doesn't, then, you know, things can kind of fizzle back out and uh, we can be back to square one again. Well, it certainly feels like a long time since we've had an El Nino. <laughs> well, it was 2010. You know, we had a quick, we had a quick progression in um, the same time of year, in spring of 2009 and summer of 2009, um, went into a pretty decent El Nino. And, you know, it, it did some good work across the southwest and southern California as far as putting down some precip. Basically been, by and large, dry since then, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, right after that, double, we, double we, La Nina. we double dipped on La Nina. And then the intervening year of 2012 looked pretty La Nina-ish anyways. And again, it's mostly looked La Nina-ish whether or not there's been a La Nina signal or not. Right, and that's what you were just saying. Yeah. Even, even though yeah. we're in sort of technically defined as an ENSO neutral conditions, the, the pattern that's set up. The uh, atmosphere sure seeps, keeps thinking it's a La Nina and, and keeps acting like that. And then we always tend to think of ENSO, El Nino, La Nina being sort of a winter phenomenon, but there is some indication or some hints that it actually can, can stifle a little bit of the monsoon, and El Nino that is. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty weak. The stats can go either way, and if you, if you torture the data in different ways, it'll tell you different things. So yeah. if you look back to 2009 as one case in point, and there's some, some work by um, Dr. Chris Castro here at, at U of A that suggests that La Nina um, conditions will give us a sort of a enhanced and earlier monsoon start. Um, and then if you see it on its flip side, we look back to 2009 when that El Nino um, came on board, it certainly seemed to take the wind out of the sails of the monsoon season. So it's, it's really too early to say um, that that could be the situation right here. And it's actually some of the dynamical models going out six months, which you have to, you know, really use with a giant grain of salt um, are suggesting a pretty robust monsoon. So I, we're still way too too far out to make any sort of... But we'll get progressively better. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I mean, over a 50 years, maybe better. Or but no, I, I mean, like, next month, we'll, if, if the conditions still are similar to what they are now, we'll have a little bit more confidence that La Nina... Or yeah, I, I think our El Nino um, forecast confidence is going to get 
progressively better every month as we get you know through this what we call a spring predictability barrier. The but the El Ni the monsoon forecast yeah, well, is still going to be you know we're going to be the third week of June looking at each other, not really sure what's going to happen. So we'll we'll just have uh, to yeah, see. I'm not I'm not I'm not willing. You'll get good. I was hoping you weren't making I me no make a monsoon forecast. We'll be... <laughs> okay, good. You shouldn't have any confidence in any of my monsoon forecasts either. So. <laughs> Well, okay, um, that was good, Mike. I think we took a, a pretty wide uh, tour around uh, the climate here. In the yeah, West. hopefully we won't have to say polar vortex again for another year. So. Uh, well, we're, I think we're going to have to continue to, to use that word so people realize that it, it's been around for a while, actually. It's actually, it's a physical <laughs> geography, physical meteorology term, so it's not part of any we sort of conspiracy. It wasn't just made up this year. No, no. I mean, there have been some really impressive Weather Channel storm names that have been used, but but the polar vortex is actually a real thing, so... <laughs> Well, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully we'll come back and be talking about more, uh, more storms, more storms named uh, yeah. after Titan. I we could name the them after one. Clemus employees, maybe, <laughs> is what we'll start doing internally. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll have our own names. Okay. Storm uh, Zach will be next on board. So, uh, Thanks to all those uh, tuning in, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again in another month. Thanks for joining.